Welcome to Volunteer Plain Talk Podcast, the podcast for today's leaders of volunteers. Your host is me, Meridian Swift. Welcome back to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Our guest, Tracy O'Neill, discusses her evolution from a new volunteer manager to one who's actually elevating her volunteer initiative. Let's take a listen. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you and to welcome Tracy O'Neill to our show. Tracy, thanks so much for being with us. Would you like to give us just a little insight into who you are and what your volunteering, uh, your volunteer manager job is? Absolutely. I'm excited to be here, Marini. Thanks for having me. Um, I have been working with volunteers for uh, about 18 years now. Um, I started my career as a social worker um, and, as most people do in our profession, stumbled upon uh, working with volunteers. After um, It was tasked to me when I was working with young people at risk of suicide and self-harm and we had a very small program of about 10 volunteers and found that I really loved it um, and have been really passionate about it um, and um, have been working with volunteers nearly two decades now. For the last probably 12 or 13 years, I've been working in major public health services uh, in Melbourne, Victoria, here in Australia, Uh, and I've been at my current role at, well, my current role for two and a half years, but I've been at my current organisation, Austin Health for seven and a half years now. So I had the privilege of actually being the founder of the volunteer program for the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Centre here um, at Austin Health when we opened in 2012 and my role's expanded since. So, did, did you find that your social worker background helped you a great deal in managing or engaging volunteers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think the the biggest, uh, I think, part of my social work training um, that comes into play is really about how empowerment drives what I do. So as a social worker, it was really important to me that I empower people to make decisions about their own lives. And and in particular, I worked with young people for the short time I was a social worker uh, in the foster and adoption system in a child and adolescent mental health service and with young people at risk of suicide and self-harm. And I guess I started studying psychology and dropped out of that because I felt that it was too prescriptive and I was being asked to diagnose people and put them in boxes. And that doesn't really fit well with me. And I think that that drive to empower people is what really support all that I do as a leader of volunteers my job is to empower people to change their world and you know it's a privilege to be able to do that every day yeah absolutely and I like I like how you put the difference between prescribing for people or empowering people and I think volunteer managers are just definitely on the side of empowering people and I think that's one of the avenues of what we do that is just not really recognized absolutely absolutely and I think it's 
you know, we, we all know that very often our volunteers can be diminished to, I guess, the, the least valued part of some of our organisations. And certainly I think we all know and hopefully we can continue to, to grow other people's understanding that our job is merely to empower the opportunity for others to, to make change. We're not really the ones that are doing the work. You know, we're the ones in the background. Seems that we're in the foreground, but certainly it's the volunteers who are the ones who are, you know, changing their communities and making a difference. Now, you and I have talked for a while. We've corresponded and we've done all kinds of things together. And I've been, I've been really interested in watching you. And I consider you one of the up coming voices of volunteer management that I think will really change the landscape for leaders of volunteers. And you have recently had some tremendous successes with elevating your program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I guess it's really interesting to hear you talk about it as tremendous success, Meridian, because it's it's felt like a really hard slog at times. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's really important to me is celebrating achievement, which I'll probably talk about multiple times during our conversation, because it can be hard to see the, the progress that you're making. So when I started uh, in my organisation seven and a half years ago, we had two separate volunteer programs. And, and two and a half years ago, we amalgamated those programs. And I now manage the the volunteer engagement team across the entire organisation, which consists of three campuses, so an acute hospital, subacute hospital and a rehabilitation hospital. And we also have some off-site mental health services, community health services and uh, a couple of op shops run by some amazing volunteers. But when I started, volunteers were definitely kind of, you know, in the lowest rung in the organisation. They weren't considered at kind of any point of major decisions or projects or programs or opportunities to support our patients. And it was really disheartening for me. It was disheartening for me on behalf of our volunteers, but it was also disheartening for me, I guess, to feel that my role wasn't valued. I, I wondered, you know, and, I, and I've often said to, you know, our previous CEO and current CEO, if we're a fluffy little program kind of off here to the side that no one cares about, why do you even have us? You know, what is what is the point? Um, and that's certainly the sense that I got from a lot of our volunteers, that they felt quite unheard and unvalued and, and often unseen. And I've heard some really distressing stories from volunteers about their experience. And I guess the growth that we've seen over the last seven and a half years through a lot of kind of chipping away really continuously has led to some great successes where our CEO now talks about our workforce of 9,000 staff and 500 volunteers, where we're included in the annual report, uh, where volunteers are now actively included in things like staff awards throughout the organisation, whereas they were intentionally excluded from those kind of things um, in the past. So there's been a real huge shift in the understanding of the, the value volunteers bring to our organisation and the contribution that they make to the care of our patients. There's a long way to go, don't get me wrong, but I guess I'm really excited by how far we've come in the last, you know, seven and a half years. Just the idea that volunteers are included in some of these things 
is honestly monumental because so many of us struggle with that type of thing. It's it's that exactly what you said. Are, are we just fluff? Are we just on the outside? Do we not count? Do we not make impact? Or are we actually part of this? And so I do understand that it wasn't something you just did and everything you know fell into place. So can you kind of walk us through it a little bit so we can all learn from it. Did you start out one day, which is kind of crazy, but one day did you say, okay, I have to formulate a plan to make this change? Or did this come about gradually? Or was it chipping away? Or I, I kind of do, Meridian, yes. I think I was really fortunate when I started this role to have been invited to apply for the job originally at the Olivia Newton-John uh, Cancer Wellness and Research Centre. And Prior to that, I had two jobs which I had not, you know, had not enjoyed. <laughs> you know, one of them I had left without another job to go to because I was really, I guess, upset about the lack of impact I felt I had had. Uh, there hadn't been a, a, a huge culture shift in that organisation and I probably hadn't quite found my voice at that stage. Mm. Uh, and the other job was I was a contractor working with volunteers and that was just a, a huge challenge because the organisation I worked for saw me as an other as well as the volunteers and that was clearly not going to change and I just struggled with the values of that organisation. So I think part of it was about the timing. So part of it was I, I kind of had this fire in my belly after having had these two experiences where I was ready to stand up I was probably at that stage about 10 years into my career as a leader of volunteers. I felt I had a little bit more knowledge and I was probably very lucky in that when I started here, we had the two programs. And so some of the conversations I was able to have was as someone external to the main, the main organisational program. So I got to set up the program I dreamed of for volunteers. We had a, you know, a, a comprehensive training program. Our volunteers were considered to be part of the um, the care team, and they were listed as such on the ONJ website. They, you know, we had uh, visions of volunteers providing, you know, uh, complementary therapies to patients, and so I worked within a very supportive part of the organisation and could push other parts as someone who I didn't work in the main volunteer program so it wasn't a risk to me to start having those conversations and I did so on behalf of my colleague who did manage that program so part of it was timing but part of it was about uh, I think there's a couple of things one of it was about being really conscious around my language which is which is probably one of the key things I want to talk about today, being really mindful of the way we talk about our roles and our volunteers and, and the impact that they can have. Part of it was about having a really amazing support team around me. So as a new leader of volunteers, very often we are so isolated, not just within our organisation but within our sector, and we kind of flail around and try to make connections with people and it takes some time to grow what, what we can call our tribe or our people. And so certainly throughout the last seven and a half years, I've had an amazing network. Some of you may have heard of it. I know it has definitely extended out of Australia. We're called the Leaders of Health Volunteer Engagement Network, so the Love Network. 
And this group is incredibly supportive, but it's also uh, an action group, really. We're, we're not just a network who want to sit around and talk about what we're doing. We want to make a difference in our sector. So this is a group who we've put on our own conference for leaders of volunteers in health. One of our health services leads a research project where every year we do some benchmarking across health services, across well, mainly in Victoria where we are, but, but across the world as well. So we can really benchmark across services. We recently received some funding to do a research project into developing a competency framework for leaders of volunteers in, in public health here in Victoria. So this group of people really understand the challenges that I go through within this organisation. So if I'm having a bad day, and I certainly did this a little while ago, I can pick up the phone and have a complaint. In this instance, I had a cry because <laughs> I was really disappointed about something that had happened here at my organisation. But having that support and having people who really understand and who you can kind of ride on their coattails a little bit when things are going well for them and not for you has been a really important part of why I've been able to kind of make this shift in the last seven and a half years. Yeah. Tracy, do you think that having that support around you uh, gives you a sense of a little more courage to be able to stand up and not feel so isolated so that you can approach with more courage to advocate for what you think is the right way to go? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, and I think the great thing about the network that we have, and probably a, a wider network here as well, we, we've got a really supportive sector here in Victoria. And part of it's about being able to practice. So we talk about our challenges and share strategies and we talk about our wins and we learn from the wins of other, of other colleagues and organisations. And I think that certainly for myself, having those colleagues around me, being able to pick up the phone and talk through a challenge or, or talking through uh, a strategy at a network meeting, being able to practice how we talk about things or being given a suggestion from someone about how I might rephrase something, I don't think I could have achieved what I have without that, you know, without that that group of people. And it's why I'm so passionate about leaders of volunteers creating a global network, you know, I think that, that it's the more that we can connect with each other, the more we can support each other and share our stories and share our strategies, the stronger we're going to become as a profession and the more rapidly we're going to really elevate uh, our profession and, and what we're able to achieve. Absolutely. And I, and I love the fact that you practice with each other and learn from each other. So it, correct me if I'm wrong, you might talk to one of your peers and say, I, I'm trying to approach senior management about X, Y, and Z. And you, your peer might say to you, oh, yeah, I did that. And here's what I said. And this seemed to work really well. Absolutely. There's that component of it. The other side of it um, that I've found really interesting has been learning about my own communication and leadership styles. And my colleagues know my strengths and weaknesses. I'm kind of a big picture person. I'm quite visionary. I'm quite an emotional and excitable person. And I often talk before I think. And a lot of the stuff that I talk about, I talk about so much. So, you know, it, it's not that what I say is not accurate. But 
I guess sometimes my emotion can drive what I say rather than uh, being a little bit more strategic about how I say something or at what point I say it or whether I let other people speak first before I say my mind. And, and having those people around me who know me really well and who can help me to see whether or not the way I would normally present an idea would maybe work well in the particular context that I'm talking about. So let's say I'm I'm having a meeting with uh, a volunteer engagement governance committee at my organisation made up of um, kind of senior leaders across the organisation. The whole purpose of that committee is to allow other people to have an investment in our program and to learn about uh, how, you know, sustainable and effective volunteer engagement But having people around me who know how excitable and passionate I can be and how much I can talk will quietly remind me to make sure I I allow people to share their own ideas and that the purpose is to to gain buy-in to the organisation and sometimes being right in the moment isn't the priority. It's allowing the team around me to really gain an understanding and therefore make decisions that I can hopefully influence. So my colleagues are great at kind of shutting me down when I talk too much or or reminding me to kind of listen more than I speak. That's been a really amazing part of, of having these colleagues around me and being able to practice and being able to have people kind of mirror back or reflect back, I suppose, uh, because not everyone responds to my communication style positively and I need to as a leader be able to modify that to get the best outcomes so yeah yeah that is so true so is is there can you think of an example where you really thought long and hard about what verbiage do I use what is going to work because of my audience don't want to put you on the spot but if you can think of something where you you know you modified and it worked out that would be really helpful well I think For me, one of the key things that I have learned is about understanding the key terminology in the organisation and the sector I work in. Uh, So working in health, I guess the buzzwords at the moment are patient experience and consumer experience, workforce, sustainability, that there's... And there's these kind of buzzwords that kind of go around and they change. Like, you know, I've noticed being in health now for 12 years, the way I've had to talk about things has changed in that time, excuse me, because the priorities have changed or the language has changed around me. And so I think if I can give you an example, one is around how I started talking about our volunteers and we had a a great big turnover of our entire executive and CEO left and we got a new CEO, all new executive staff, many of whom were from the corporate sector and um, hadn't necessarily worked with volunteers before. And so I started using the word workforce intentionally in every context that I could. So when the CEO had a a big welcome forum with, you know, all of her executive and and more than 200 staff, you know, I made sure I put my hand up and said, hi, I, you know, Tracy, I lead the volunteer engagement team. We have one of the largest workforces in our organisation and the head of HR nearly fell off a chair because she hadn't considered our team as part of the workforce of the organisation. And it still took quite a long time for that shift to happen and for other people to start considering our volunteers as part of the workforce. But when I saw her reaction that day, I made it my intention to 
to label our volunteers as part of the organisation's workforce from that moment. So in documents, I will ask them to include volunteers in either the definition or in the body of, of a policy or a strategic plan. I use, I guess, other evidence. So in our health standards here in Australia, the definition of workforce in our um, health quality and safety standards includes volunteers, you know, and so I'm able to use that to justify, you know, why I include volunteers as workforce. And just using that word has, and not across the whole organisation, like we're a really large organisation, but certainly in pockets and certainly with people who are going to help me make a difference in the organisation, it's changed the way they see volunteers. And they now see volunteers as having you know, a purpose that's linked to our strategic priorities. They're not just some nice thing over here and, you know, little old ladies who make cups of tea and we're here with purpose and we're here for the same purpose as our staff. So just that small shift in language is probably one example that I can can give that's had a really big example, impact, sorry. I mean, that I was going to ask you, and I think you you know that I was going to ask you uh, about a small step that became a big step and guess what? You just answered that question. That that alone is is unbelievably huge because what you did to me, what you did in just choosing the word that you use to describe your volunteer team would speak to what the new CEO, new administration, new management understood and was able to comprehend in a way that they wouldn't have had you continued to refer to your volunteer team in the old way and you would have just had the same results over and over. So that that's huge, if you ask me. It, it is huge, Maria, and it has been. You know, even in things like, you know, we've not been considered in things like OH&S of the organisation necessarily unless there's been an incident or... Um, you know, there's probably lots of little examples like that. But the fact now people are starting to think of volunteers as part of our workforce, they're being considered in a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of other uh, areas of the organisation where they think, oh, we've got to think about this staff. We really need to think about how this impacts or, or needs to include volunteers as well. So it's definitely had a flow-on effect. And have you taken this verbiage and thought into how you show solutions, results, impact of your volunteers? Have you changed the way uh, going from maybe just, you know, the volunteers provided, uh, you know, 500 volunteers provided 1,000 hours last month and saved the organization whatever dollars, et cetera? Uh, Have you found new ways to show impact that, that incorporates that verbiage and incorporates your thinking as to what these folks would respond to better. Yeah, absolutely. We've never had, well, since I've been here, we've not had an accurate kind of count of, of volunteer numbers. Um, it's kind of been a bit of a, a guesstimate. And certainly we're working on that because I think there is some value in, you know, knowing how many hours a volunteer contributes, but we've never reported that. And I'm really, you know, I'm really loath to use that as a um, as a measure of volunteers' impact because I don't think it demonstrates any impact at all. So, I 
one of the things we're doing, and we're, we're not there yet, I guess, and if I can go two steps back, one of the things we have done is established a three-year operational plan, um, which is really guiding our work. That's been a huge step for us. But part of um, one of the actions in our operational plan is to develop a purpose statement and measurables for every single role we have in our organisation. So how do we demonstrate that the role volunteers are doing is having an impact in the way we want it to? And the way we're able to measure that is we have, a, I guess, a philosophy statement for volunteer engagement at our organisation, which is that every volunteer will be uh, engaged in a role that is meaningful to them and has an impact on patient experience. So we're going to develop both uh, qualitative and quantitative measures for every single role that we have to be able to demonstrate whether the roles that we're recruiting volunteers to are having the kind of impact we want them to. We don't want to be wasting our resources and our volunteers' precious time if we're not getting the kind of outcomes that we want to for either the volunteer or, or the patient. But one of the things that I am really passionate about is storytelling. And I tell a lot of stories in my organisation whenever I can, both to staff and, and executives, but also to volunteers. I think I've tried really hard to influence the way volunteers see themselves within our organisation because, you know, volunteers are, are always the ones who say, oh, oh, it's nothing and I get more out of this than I give and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not the one that's in the patient's bed, this is the least I can do. And I've really tried to to change that around to have volunteers see just how incredible their impact is. And if I can give you one example, when I started at this organisation, we have over 100 volunteers who volunteer in our op shops and a gift shop here at the hospital. And since 1974, they have donated more than uh, $3.5 million. Um, And on average at the moment every year, they donate about $300,000. And that's how their work has been reported everywhere. You know, they raised $300,000. Wow, that's amazing. But to me, that's not amazing. I mean, we we have a um, an annual budget of I think it's about, I don't know, $80 million or something like that. And what they donate is tiny and really is a kind of drop in the ocean compared to the, the money that we, we get from the government to provide our services. Mm-hmm. So what we do every year is these volunteers get to choose where their money goes. So staff can put in submissions for equipment that we don't have funding for. It might be new state-of-the-art equipment. It might be equipment that's kind of coming to its use by date and we haven't been given funding from the government to replace it. So the next step in reporting the impact of volunteers is to say, you're fantastic. You brought this brand-new machine or you replaced 12 computers And again, I think, well, that still doesn't really tell us the impact that volunteers have. No one knows what these machines do or what happens. So they started inviting staff to come and tell them about what these machines do. And a couple of years ago, we had a doctor come in and talk about a a portable echocardiogram machine that our our volunteers had purchased for the organisation. Now, at that time, we had a big kind of static, I don't know much about ECG machines, but it was a big static machine that was stuck on one level of the the organisation. If a patient needed an ECG, 
they were wheeled up to level seven of the hospital and they, you know, we, we had a, a list of people that we needed to get through. It depended on the people who'd come through our emergency department as to, you know, whether other people had to wait. So having this uh, portable echocardiogram machine meant that we could service patients who may not have otherwise been able to get an ECG. Mm-hmm. So I said to this doctor, I don't care how much it costs and I, you know, I'd know nothing about the machine. Can you tell me the impact this has had on a patient? And he shared with us this story. He said we had a patient come into our hospital who uh, required routine prostate surgery and he complained of breathlessness after very slight exercise. And, and this was quite unusual for him. He hadn't, he hadn't experienced this before. Because we had the portable ECG machine, the doctor was able to to monitor his heart and discovered that he had advanced heart disease. And if they had put him under under anaesthetic for his routine prostate surgery, he potentially would have died. Now, for me, that changed the impact of our volunteers from giving the hospital a $300,000 check to saving a life. And for me, that impact blows any money out of the water. You know, it still brings tears to my eyes when I tell that story because I think volunteers are very often reduced to being um, a labour force who do things for us when really every volunteer in every organisation does so to create a better world. And if we can share how they create that better world, that's not only great for our volunteers, but that's an amazing realisation for our organisations. So for me, storytelling is probably one of the most powerful tools that I use to to really influence the culture of volunteerism at my organisation. So if anyone wanted to pick up on that, that absolutely wonderful idea, what they can do is just follow the trail, right? Go from, well, what did volunteers contribute? What did what they contributed contribute to the organization? And on and on until you get down to the actual human element and find all that out and better to have it come from someone who has firsthand knowledge of how, like you say, the uh, gentleman's life was basically saved by the equipment to be able to tell that story. And then you, you've you kind of traced it right down to the source, which is, like you say, one person to another making a huge difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I guess these stories come to us all the time and it's about it's about learning how to capture them. So we've been really fortunate here in Victoria, our, um, our Peak Body Volunteer Victoria have run a couple of kind of storytelling workshops for us and and so, you know, I've, I've been really interested in this. So one of the guys was um, Sean Callahan from, I think it's called Anecdotal, Anecdotally. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I can send you the details of him, but he's got a little podcast where they – they share stories of impact for the purpose of influencing strategy or culture in organisations. And so it doesn't matter where the stories come from. It's about becoming adept at hearing them and then creating a story bank um, and being able to pick from those stories which one is probably going to have the biggest impact or share the point that I want to get across in the best way. You know, at the moment, I've probably got a handful of maybe, you know, six to ten main stories that I tell. And I'm sure if I sat down, I would 
I would create many more. We've started collecting stories from our volunteers. So when they come in and share something that was really exciting about their day, we ask them to write it down for us. We often feature it in our volunteer newsletter and that, again, is a way of kind of holding on to it and not losing it. We've got it in writing now and we can go back to it if we want to. But I guess stories are able to really demonstrate uh, not only impact, but but so many of the things that we need to kind of demonstrate, why we need to resource volunteerism better, why we need to be really, you know, aware of the trends of volunteering and why things and how things are changing. That's probably a big one that I'm doing in the organisation at the moment is really saying I'm not prepared to commit resources to doing things this way when I actually know we're not going to get a good outcome. We need to be changing things and doing it this way. So having those stories really allows you to demonstrate points wherever you need to. And and actually, stories go both ways. You share stories with volunteers about the impact they're making and then share stories with uh, senior management and staff and the community about the impact volunteers are making as well. And it kind of does double duty, doesn't it? Sure does. One thing that I noticed, but I never got a chance to actually do a study on it, but I could see it anecdotally working, is that we would have a survey. We would survey our patients, our families, anytime they took advantage of volunteer help the scores overall on the surveys would skyrocket. But I could see it anecdotally. Do you find the same thing? Oh, absolutely. And probably probably on both points, Meridian, it's it's still really challenging to get questions about volunteers in surveys, mm-hmm. both internally and from our, um, our state health department who uh, send surveys to our patients consistently. And there's only one question out of hundreds, uh, which is in the paediatric departments about volunteers. Yeah. But, but we definitely find that experience shifts when people engage with volunteers in our sector. And, and this would be the same in any sector, but I guess this is where I've worked for 12 years. Volunteers are able to really have a, a human connection with people. You mentioned this before. People come into a, a health service and often the, the power differential is quite significant. You know, they come here trusting the doctors and the nurses and the allied health professionals who are here to take care of them. We know many of our patients have very poor literacy in general and even worse health literacy. Um, and so they come into this organisation with something that's not right with their health. And they need to trust people to help them make the right decisions. They often, you know, they don't want to interrupt nurses and doctors because they're too busy and they're too important. And and we find that having volunteers involved in their care really allows them to both connect with someone at a human level. You know, they're not asking to take their blood pressure or asking if they had a bowel movement today as, you know, as they experience with our staff. And they don't need to do things at a timeline. You know, you have to have your bath at 8 o'clock and you have to have your dinner at 5 p.m. because that's how we structure our day. With volunteers, they get to have uh, a really authentic relationship with someone And they're often helping in ways that is more about nurturing them as a human than it is about caring for their health, which at the end of the day, I think, is what's most important to all of us. And the thing, too, about having volunteers who can go in and provide that human element, it's like a a double benefit because not only are they providing the human element to the patient, 
but they're also giving additional time to overworked and and harried staff. Absolutely. And and not just that, but but in some circumstances they are allowing staff to do their job better. Mm-hmm. So we we're piloting a, a project at the moment where we have some volunteers working in one of our acute wards, um, helping in the prevention of delirium. We've not had volunteers in our acute wards in the past. I guess staff have felt too busy. I don't have time to deal with volunteers and I don't know what they do and I certainly don't have time to instruct them and support them and guide them and provide appropriate handovers. And one of the tasks the volunteers are doing is uh, using a tool to collect information about this person. So we know, we know that our doctors and our nurses and our allied health professionals provide better care when they are able to make a human connection with their patients, but they don't often have the time to get to know their patients. So volunteers are finding out things like, what are the important relationships in in your life? Where did you grow up? What was your career? What are the things that you love to do when you've got some spare time? And they're making a note of that. Now, the volunteers love it because it's enabling them to have really meaningful conversations with patients. The patients are loving it because they're able to connect with someone about things that mean a lot to them. The families love it because they know that their loved ones are being cared for and nurtured. And our clinicians and our practitioners are loving it because when they walk into a room, they have a poster on the wall with a whole bunch of information about their patient where they can immediately make a connection with them without having to ask all the questions and get to know them. So the impact of this has been has been huge for our staff. Tracy, if I'm a, a new volunteer manager or even a manager, a volunteer manager who's been in the field for a while, and I just feel really stuck in my position. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how do I, I I see so much potential here. I see that I need to move my program forward. Do you have any advice? I do. I think, I think the most important things are to start where you're at. So, you know, I think I mentioned um, at the start that, that, Part of my confidence really came from, you know, the fact I'd been in the sector for at least 10 years and um, I'd had a couple of frustrating experiences that really sparked and, and ignited kind of something in me. But I certainly didn't have this confidence in my early years of leading volunteers. So I think start small and start where you're at. You might not be as, you know, passionate and as excitable and, and as adept at kind of speaking out as I have become, which I certainly wasn't at the start of my career. So pick one thing, one thing that you feel in your organisation is going to start increasing the visibility of what you do or what it is your volunteers do or increasing the value attributed to your team. It might be that you pick that word just You don't let volunteers say, I'm just a volunteer, and you pull them up um, or you pull staff up when they say, you know, that's just for volunteers. Well, no, actually, they're not just volunteers. It might be as small as that. One of my colleagues here, Ange from the YMCA Victoria, one of the things that she did was when staff at her organisation said the word staff, she always said, and volunteers. Every time if someone said, you know, blah, 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 staff, she would jump in and say, and volunteers. And she said it got to a point where she knew she'd done her job when other people started 
saying and volunteers instead of her. So she could then see that she was having an impact. So I think choose one thing that you're going to find easy um, and that you feel is going to make a difference or, or make it really visible, that kind of disparity between how we value our staff and value our volunteers or, or whatever it might be that you would feel comfortable doing. And repetition is so important. Yes. And you have to be consistent. People will notice when you don't suddenly say it um, and they'll think you've forgotten about it. You need to be really consistent until people are on, you know, on that train with you and they're actually starting to do the same things that, that you do. So hearing my CEO every single time now that she talks about our, our workforce of 9,000 staff and 500 volunteers, that was me repeating volunteers are a part of our workforce we have one of the largest workforces in our organizations hundreds of times in so many different conversations and contexts I just decided that was what I would focus on really making sure that people saw volunteers as part of our workforce and you alluded to this before and it's not that things happen overnight you went through a long process you had to repeat something over and over and over until it caught on and and became integrated so don't expect that things are going to change overnight right absolutely and I think I have a couple of things to say about that one of them is about how our tribe are that I talked about that that network around me One of the things that is really fantastic that we do is every time we have a network meeting on our agenda is ta-da moments. Uh, Now, ta-da moments are where we all stick our hands up in the air and say, ta-da, when someone achieves something fantastic. Because when we are struggling in our situation or in our organisation, it's really important to recognise that we're not doing this alone. Um, You know, so uh, being able to celebrate with other people, we're able to recognise that this isn't our own fight. We're not doing this on our own. We're part of a a, a huge sector Um, and the elevation of the status of volunteers and, and the elevation of our profession is only going to happen when we unite and then where we have a shared common language and we're all speaking about things in in the same way. So kind of hang on to other people's achievements if you're struggling because your time will come and hopefully you you receive some motivation from, from celebrating with your colleagues. And the other thing is about reflecting on your own achievements. You know, we've made it a point in, in my team at the start of our team meetings to share our achievements uh, between kind of this meeting and the last one. And sometimes it feels really mundane. But I think that if we don't stop to reflect on those achievements, we often get caught up in uh, the feeling that nothing's progressing because it is a really, really long journey and, and this change can take a really long time. So unless you prioritise reflecting on the tiny little achievements you've had over time, you might not make it to the point that I have, thankfully, after seven years where, you know, it feels like a, a enormous, an enormous celebration of this huge change. But when I look back, it's actually been uh, a lot of tiny little actions repeated over and over and over and over again. That has led to this point where we look around us now and in the conversations we have, we can say, yeah, we've really made a difference here. We've, we've had an impact. So, um, I think celebrate the achievements of others and make sure you reflect on the, the every tiny achievement that you have as well in, in changing culture or, or shifting your behaviour to have that impact. And once you have your 
first achievement that gives you the impetus to go on and achieve more, doesn't it? It does. It really does. And I think, you know, I guess if I reflect on um, a situation that our team has had over the last couple of years, when we uh, restructured our program, we took on the management of a team, a volunteer team who'd been able to self-manage for a really long time. And we've had some very challenging moments uh, through some change management activities that we've done with them, um, some really challenging conversations, some, you know, instances of, of uh, bullying both towards staff and towards other volunteers. And I think that if we hadn't have focused on our achievements, a number of us likely would have been really worn down by that and probably, you know, ended up throwing our hands up and saying, I'm not doing this anymore. But we've gotten to a point now where we can say, look at the number of volunteers who are actually coming forward with their own ideas and with their own stories to share and um, to demonstrate the impact that they have and to talk about the positive impact of the changes that we've implemented and to appreciate the fact that we've included them in the change process. Uh, you know, I think there's moments that we have um, in our jobs with volunteers when it's really challenging, where it would be easy to throw our hands up in the air. So, um, you know, it is really important to, to celebrate. And not everything just moves along at a steady pace. I'm sure you've had setbacks in seven years. You, you can't possibly go without a setback or two. Is there any advice you have for when you, you know, reach a setback? I think I'm going to assume that this is going to be, some of this is going to be quite particular to the individual. I'm a person who has to talk and has to get things off their chest and I'm quite a reflective person. So one of the things that I do is um, is go and speak to my manager mostly, who's a really great sounding board for me, but also someone who understands the context of the organisation. So, you know, I guess I mentioned before that I'm someone who's a big picture thinker and, you know, I, you know, think really fast and talk really fast. And one of the things that he's really great at doing is pulling me back and reminding me that I have to bring people along the journey with me. I can't stand in front of them and pull them behind. I have to stand beside them and walk with them. And sometimes they're not going to want to walk at my pace and I need to slow down. So, you know, I think it really depends on, on yourself. But, but for me, it's about... I need to get it off my chest or it's just going to simmer and, and I'm going to get really angry about things. Again, it's about reflecting on the achievements I have had because uh, I think it can be really deflating to define yourself by one, one setback because setbacks are part of how we grow and how we learn. So they're actually a really important part of, of the journey. And another way I like to visualise it is um, I only learned this a few months ago for something completely unrelated to volunteer management, but someone, I guess we often visualise peaks and troughs as, a, you know, a, a line on a page that goes up and down like mountains and valleys. And someone really shifted my perspective on, on this kind of model by saying, think of it as a spiral that's standing on its end. Um, and you work your way up the spiral. And, and given the nature of a spiral, you, you you always go up, but then you come back down a little bit and you go back up. So when you slide down a spiral, you never slide to the bottom. You just slide a little way back, you know. So I think just recognising that 
a setback isn't necessarily a disaster. You know, a, a setback can be just a really slight, a couple of steps backwards for us to to rethink, to reset, to maybe consider other um, other ways to address a situation potentially even other people that we should seek to influence. So maybe we're trying to influence the wrong people. You know, see it as an opportunity. And for each volunteer manager, you know, know yourself and and know what you need to do. How how have you treated and dealt with setbacks in, in your life? I mean, your working life is not that much different. So this has been a, a tremendously instructive. Is there anything that you want to leave for now, the folks that listen in on this, uh, anything you want to leave them with? I just, I think just that you're not alone, really. I think, you know, I'm um, I'm so inspired by my, you know, colleagues in the volunteer leadership sector right across the world. I think there's some incredible things happening and, you know, in some ways we're still a, we haven't quite got it together you know, uh, as a profession, and I think that there's a really exciting opportunity that's that's happening at the moment with, you know, people like us. I've been so excited to connect with you, Meridian, and, and the conversations that we've been having and being able to review your book and have you review some of the things that I've been writing. These connections seem to be happening all around us at the moment. I think we're in a really exciting period in our profession, and I would really just love to encourage people to, to reach out you know, not not just within your local area, but reach out through, you know, LinkedIn and, and Twitter and Facebook, whatever it might be, and start connecting with, with other leaders around the world, because I think this is where our greatest impact is going to come from. Um, as we come together as a, you know, a, a profession with, with true solidarity right across the world. I heard that you are going to be included in the new Best Ideas for 2020. Is that correct? That is correct. I was very excited to, to, to be accepted to make a submission. You know, that's, that's awesome. It is awesome. It is. And, and in some really incredible company, um, I think, you know, these are people who initially I looked up to and, and probably they felt a little bit unreachable. Uh, but I think the thing to know about our sector is we all want the same thing. We all we all really want to help to support a better world and to help people to empower people to really change their world. And everyone in our sector is so amazingly beautiful and open and giving and generous. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really proud and um, quite humbled to be in such esteemed company. So thanks, Rudy. Oh, absolutely. And we'll be looking forward to that. It'll be the top ideas for 2020 for the volunteer management sector. And Tracy will be featured in there and can't wait to read that. So again, thank you so much. Uh, You are an inspiration and a wealth of knowledge. And I certainly hope that we can do this again. Thank you, Rudy. And I'd be honored. It's great. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Big thank you to Alternate Timelines for the use of their music. For more volunteer management talk, or if you just want to reach out to me, please visit my website, volunteerplanetalk.com. Or you can catch me at Meridian Swift on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Meridian Swift. Thank you and bye-bye.